This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writer's Jumpstart Writing Competition. The competition is open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts with a panel of 12 industry judges from top companies including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, Bronze Studios, and more. To learn more and check out their incredible prize packages, visit RoadmapWriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the Competitions tab. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing our second Paper Scraps special, answering your own TV writing questions, as well as covering some of the more recent TV business news. Although we didn't title the first one of these we did as a Paper Scraps special, this is basically our sequel to uh, PT91, and we might do a few more of these in the future if there's demand and questions. But first, we have a very special announcement for our 100th episode. That's right. We are going to be doing our very own live panel for PT100. Uh, at the moment, it's called An Evening with the Writer's Room, and we are going to have some incredible guests for you guys. Yeah, the idea is to put on essentially a Writer's Room panel with different guests from each level of uh, from staff writer all the way to Shauner, each showcasing a different level of experience and their own take on the TV running business. They're going to kind of walk us through the steps of their journey, you know, whether they have just gotten staffed or whether they've been doing this for 20 years, you know, what is it like to live at each level of the writer's room and how do you get from one step to the next? We really wanted to showcase the reason for why we started this podcast, which is about becoming a TV writer and what TV writing really means. So that was kind of the embodiment of that idea. All right, we're going to put this information up online, but uh, Alex, walk us through some of the details. Yeah, so you can get the tickets for this event at paperteam.co slash panel 100. That's the number 100, all one word with, with the word panel. Uh, and it's going to take place Saturday, August 4th at the Greenway Court Theater, obviously in LA, because that's where we're based in LA. Yeah, if you know LA, it's right around Melrose and Fairfax. Uh, the exact address will be up there, but it is pretty central and convenient for uh, a lot of people to get to. We're going to be having some people from some of your favorite shows like V. Silicon Valley, Riverdale, Bojack, and more. So it's going to be one that you don't want to miss. And once again, you can get the tickets for this event at paperteam.co slash panel 100. Right. And the best part is that this is completely free. We'll ask for some donations at the door if you want to pitch in to, to help the podcast. But otherwise, feel free to sign up on the website there and show up and it's going to be a great evening. All right. We'll see you there. And now time for the Paper Scrap Special number two. Welcome back to our paper tea segment for the month of July. And as a reminder, we started our own free competition where listeners can send in teasers of their original TV pilots for feedback and prizes. And today we are covering two teasers, both of which, as usual, you can find in the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 97. So let's get started with our first teaser. All right. The first one is called Miracle Village by Ellen R. Baxter. And this is a drama. So the summary is, in a church in the eponymous Miracle Village, a choir and rock band plays an exciting, infectious song to a congregation of people. Jerry, seemingly a pastor of the church, addresses the crowd with a sermon about overcoming the adversities of being shunned by the world. He then gives a signal to turn off the light. Uh, each person lights a candle, and it's revealed that everyone in the congregation is wearing a tracking bracelet on their ankles. Jerry then begins reading a passage of the Bible. Uh, what do you think about this one, Alex? I kept thinking of uh, In the Garden of Eden, the Simpsons scene. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, da, da, da. I actually like the ambiance of the teaser. There was an interesting, provocative statement before the script, which we didn't really put in the summary, but just for our listeners' information, it reads, Though the characters depicted are works of fiction, the sins they've committed and the community they live in are real. So I thought that was a kind of interesting, provocative way of leading us into the world. But I wanted more out of the situation. There isn't much tension being built in, what is it, 1.5 pages? And the reveal that they're wearing tracking bracelet is cool, but it isn't a big deal compared to what the pros makes it out to be. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of poses a question. It shows that there's something more going on, but it really is more of a plot reveal, nothing character-based. Yeah, for sure. I, I did think it's a really interesting situation, and it's it's well set up in terms of the tone and the mood in this church and what's going on. But it did really feel too short to fully explore the situation it presented with us. Like you said, that reveal of the tracking bracelets is cool, 
but you know, you need to really hammer home why that should be shocking or compelling rather than just kind of interesting. Here's my bad pitch on this is probably more for comedy, but you see the, the ankle bracelets, then there's a sign that says murderers anonymous up the top. <laughs> you know, it's like, why is it? What does it? And I know that you're trying to create a mystery around what is going on with these ankle bracelets, but at the same time, I want to feel the punch of that a little bit more. No, I definitely agree that there needs to be one more turn, one more reveal that shows why do we care about these people, really? The murderer isn't just a plot reveal. It's also, oh, it's actually an interesting take on who these people are. It's not who I thought they were. But to that character idea, Miracle Village sounds like an ensemble-esque show about the inhabitants of this village. So you already have the pieces there in the scene to even introduce us to some of these characters. And I think that there's one element that is missing is Jerry or Gary might be one of these lead characters, but he doesn't have much of an arc. He's really just reading a sermon, which in a vacuum isn't interesting when you're just reading it on the page. It's just kind of like a, a monologue about ethics or about these abstract concepts. It's not really something character-based. Mm, it was hard to find someone to latch on to emotionally and follow into this, whereas I think perhaps the scene might have hit us harder if we really had cared about one of these characters and then we realized, oh, wow, they're actually bad people or something like that. No, definitely agree. But uh, do we have any micro thoughts on this? Uh, I found that there were a lot of sentence fragments used in the writing. So lots of ending a sentence after the first preposition or halfway through something. And, you know, that can be really effective when you use it sparingly. But here I felt it was a little bit overused. And as a result, it makes all of the use of it feel less effective. So I think just watch out for the sentence fragments when they need to be used to create tension and pacing and when they don't need to be used. And you can just write it as a regular sentence. So what makes this one to read on in the script versus not? I think the backdrop is there. The setup is there also. But there's just something missing for me currently as it stands as to what the mystery of the show really is. Yeah, I just think we need that little bit more of a bone thrown and the hint as to what it is more that's going on in the situation that's really going to hook us in. And if you can hammer that just a little harder, I think it will be effective. All right, let's move on to our second teaser of the week called Unprecedented by Maddie Baxter. And that is a comedy and in this teaser, we open on an elementary school-aged Maddie telling the school if he ruled the world, he would give everyone their own horses and have a branch of the military to protect Mandy Moore and check to see how she's doing. We then cut to 20 years later as an adult Maddie watches the results of the 2020 presidential election, which he somehow wins by writing ballot. Anderson Cooper is in disbelief. Lisa, Maddie's friend, enters the apartment and they chat about the result of the election. What did you think of Unprecedented? I thought it was a funny setup. There were some good quips in there. But for me, I think that I just really wanted to know more about Maddie so that I could tell why it's so funny that he's been elected president. Now, we have this setup as a kid where he's talking about giving people horses and Mandy Moore and stuff, but I don't think any of that really translates necessarily to him as an adult. So, you know, what is it about his personality and his beliefs as an adult that would translate to a really funny situation as to how he would run the world? A showrunner of mine once said that the best thing you can do is get a laugh from just a camera shot on a character who hasn't even said anything yet. And that's because the audience knows them so well, we already know how they'll react and why that's funny. And I think that that kind of uh, paradigm is true here. Yeah, I mean, to me, my biggest bump to that point is the weird way everyone is reacting or not reacting. I mean, I get the setup on the literal level that, you know, he's getting elected on the running ballot, but there are many sort of huge leaps of logic for me to accept what is happening. Like, why, why is he learning about this for the first time while watching Anderson Cooper? Why is he getting phone calls once CNN announces the result instead of getting, uh, you know, wrong up earlier? Anyway, but really the, the big bump here is the way everyone is reacting. You know, Anderson Cooper seems to be overtly calm about it and still uses very flowery language like do my ass deceive could it possibly be the nobody democrat and the donald vanquished by writing candidate uh, if a magical force hacked an election and caused some writing candidate to win it to the surprise of the media I feel like these reactions are kind of underplayed. Uh, and the same goes for Lisa, who just dabs uh, sweat off the forehead. Now, I will say that Maddie does hang a lantern about Lisa's lack of reaction. He says in the script, you know, I don't really get how this is not a big ordeal to you. But then kind of like for our first script, I wanted a turn here as well, some kind of explanation as to why this is happening. And either the pro should play across the teaser, how weirdly non-reactive and complacent everyone is in contrast to the absurdity of this situation or there's maybe key reactions missing. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that. I think that, of course, in comedy, there's always some level of a buy-in and you suspend your disbelief to some amount just to accept the premise of what's going on. But I think here we definitely could have used a little bit more explanation to help sell us, you know, even just some lines from Anderson Cooper being like, you know, bypassing the electoral college system after last year's constitutional reform, you know, little things like that that just help with the, the believability of what's going on right here. I agree with the reactions. They felt a little bit off, a little bit not quite genuine. We don't find out until one of the last lines that he didn't even know he was running. So I was wondering if this was like his plan all along or something. So I think there was just a more effective way to get into that scene and to to exploit that kind of hilarity there. My other note is just on the comedy. I think that when you're doing satire like this, you kind of need a direction or a focus on what you're satirizing exactly rather than just making a general commentary about, oh, isn't politics weird and, and silly and that kind of thing. I think that if there was some kind of actual message behind the satire of a, a write-in candidate just won the election, it would punch more to us and it would be funnier. And I think that there are uh, angles you can come in on that. It's just not that clear to me right here what that is. It's interesting because I think the only character theoretically with a perspective in this scene is Anderson Cooper, and yet he's so almost cartoonish, which is fine for a comedy, but I think it's taken to an extreme where we don't really get who our characters are outside of Anderson Cooper, who's a very familiar face anyway. So to that, I kind of wanted more of that take. Yeah, exactly. What is this author's point of view on politics and on the situation that's unfolding? You know, What is ultimately the point of this satire and what is it telling us? Anything on the, the page note level? I mean, I feel some of the dialogue, especially the Anderson Cooper monologue, could be broken up or even shortened. Anderson Cooper doesn't really need the monologue he has. I feel like in page two, it's a bit long for the content we're trying to get across, which is establishing that this is the election night and you know polls have been closed and whatnot. So I think that's an element that could be shortened. Yeah, there was only a tiny little minor thing for me. In the first scene, it said, uh, it's 2000. And to me, that was unclear. They were talking about the year 2000, or it was talking about the kind of graininess of the video footage. And I was like, is that like a, a frame thing? Is that a, a visual <laughs> audio thing? So if it was any other number, like 1999, we'd be clear it's a year, but just the number 2000, I guess, doesn't immediately evoke that, oh, you're talking about a time period. So this tiny little thing there. Also, don't forget to close the quotation mark on election night in America. Why even bother at the end of page one? <laughs> We're going very specific. <laughs> so specific. Sorry. But what about this makes us want to read on or not? I, I just think that if I understood better what this meant for the character Maddie and saw some inclination of what was about to happen, the kind of craziness that's about to come, you know, sort of a little hint of, of what the unique action that you could play out in a, in a story like this would be rather than just the calm before the storm in his house that would really pull me into it and again knowing more about maddie as an adult and why him being a president would be so funny i'd be more inclined to read on i echo these sentiments i kind of wanted that final turn of not really explaining but giving me a better sense as to why this is happening why here why now and not just because he's getting elected but really how is he even getting elected? How is this even possible? And to that, I kind of wanted more of a reaction to it. So if those elements are put in, I do believe that it's an interesting premise in of itself. Yeah, I think if you have these five pages to hook a reader, and let's say this is just a random original sample for people to read and it never gets made, then why not go all out and explore the potential of this premise and pull out to a crane shot of helicopters around his house and things like that and really just sell us on uh, what you can do in a show like this. And that brings us to the two winners for the month of July, and each winner will be awarded a free month of Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network of a $69 value. Yeah, this month-long program will grant the writer one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to. They'll get a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, get four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch prep webinar with literary manager Chris Deckard of Fictional Entity, and you get one interactive webinar with Roadmap's creative director on behind-the-scenes look at the industry. All right, and the two July winners are... Roll Dentrums. How Grace Got to Run the World by Reeve Siegel and Kayla Crawford. Nice, congratulations. Congrats to that. And the other winner is Reunion Tour by Paul Sprangers. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Congratulations, Paul. And if you would like to send in your own teasers for feedback and potential prizes, you can do that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser. All right, let's get on with the show. 
All right, so we have some listener questions that have been sent in to us, and the first one is... Is from Brianna, who actually posted a comment on PT90, because PT90 was our episode on rewriting your TV script, and she was the impetus for that episode because she sent us an email about uh, how to rewrite essentially a script, and she posted a response saying... Thanks for answering my question in such detail. I've done a couple of rewrites since I emailed you about this. I'm currently on the fourth draft and I finally feel ready. When I'd go back to my outline, I realized that some scenes were basically repeating my story beats. I never realized that there would be such a back and forth between draft and outline, but I rely on an outline so much now when before I would have never thought to write one. It sure makes a world of difference. One thing that I find really interesting in this podcast is the mention of joke fatigue. I finally get feedback from a friend who reassured me that the jokes were funny, the scenes humorous, and the pace just right. And I was prepared to hear that the script was not funny at all. I also got some great notes about parts of the script that were not working as well. I realize now how important feedback is and how it enables you to move forward with your script when you're not quite sure where to take it. And it's nice to hear that not every note needs to be addressed. Sometimes you have to go with your gut. So, to that point, do you recommend websites or forums where I might be able to get feedback? You know, for those times when friends say they want to read your script and give notes, but never actually get around to it. I mean, that's a really good question. And look, the answer is it's tough. You know, time is the one resource that most of us are short on, aside from perhaps money. So, you know, as someone who is often asked to read friends' scripts, there's nothing more than I would love to sit down and read them and make detailed notes and give everyone feedback. But once I'm finished after a long day of work, whether it's in the writer's room or otherwise, plus I have to find time to write my own stuff, plus recording podcasts on the weekend, plus my hobbies and interests, spending time with my significant other, actually managing to sleep, all that kind of thing. There's just so little time and attention left to actually sit down and prioritize reading those friends' scripts. It's so easy for that to just kind of get lost. Now, especially for those of us who are also kind of paid script readers on the side to make ends meet or during hiatus, uh, we're presented with a choice if we could either get paid to read a script or not get paid to read a script. So, I do have some kind of solutions, I think, that will help in this regard for getting feedback. And here they are. Instead of just asking uh, a friend to read your script out of the blue, what you could do instead is perhaps a script swap. You read their script and they read your script. So then if it's reciprocal, you know, if someone's done me a favor already by reading one of my scripts, I will absolutely make the time to do the same for them. Another good idea could be a writer's group, you know, getting that regular group of people together and the expectation is that everyone reads the scripts by a certain date and gives their notes and feedback. And then again, everyone gets some value out of that. Yeah, this is something I feel like every writer, especially in TV, needs is that idea of a writer's group because TV is also a writer's group in essence, right? It's people meeting around a table, pitching ideas for episodes, for stories, characters, all that stuff. So if you are in a writing group before you even enter a writer's room, you'll be more prepared for that. I'll call back to our PT08 episode, the Reading Onion episode, this idea of getting continuous feedback throughout that process of script development, not just on the outline, but really uh, from the pitch and the inception of that idea. I think another way you could go about it is to actually put on like a table read or a script reading of your script. You know, you are actually maybe getting some friends who are actors to read the parts and invite an audience of friends and, you know, order people pizza and give them beers and soft drink, you know, all that kind of thing, <laughs> like making an event out of it. And then that way they're not kind of finding their own time to read the script. It's actually sort of a cool thing where you're going to get a bunch of feedback from people at that point. And in terms of websites and forums and boards, I mean, there are multiple avenues online, whether it's on Reddit or on Facebook, where you can get peers to get that script swap or that writer's group setup or whatever it is. One such resource is something that we started recently, which is our own TV writers Facebook group, which uh, we talked about in a previous episode on, at paperteam.co slash group. And this is, again, intended more as a community. So if you are asking for feedback for your group, offer something in exchange. Don't just ask for something, but really create and lean into that sense of community. Maybe you want to form a writer's group with your peers online. Maybe it's about doing uh, what Nick just mentioned in terms of swapping scripts. Do something for someone else. Don't just post your PDF online and ask for feedback there. Absolutely. Another one I heard about recently, and I don't have any experience with this, so I can't advocate for it one way or another, but there's this thing called Coverfly X, and it's essentially a thing where you sign up to read other people's scripts. And then when you read a script, you kind of get a token or a certain amount of credit. And you can use that to put your script there and then have that read by other people. And there's sort of like a vetting process and, you know, the good readers get better scores and things like that. So it's basically like a facilitated online script swap. 
Is this free or is this? It's uh, free. No, gotcha. it, it is. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing to look into. So if all of these other avenues are, are not kind of turning out or you need something turned around really quickly or you need real detailed feedback, things like that, you can consider paying for coverage from reputable sources, whether they are proven services or people or perhaps competitions that provide feedback. You know, it's something that you're actually you know getting something out of and wanting to spend your money on. Again, these will go into much more detail than perhaps receiving one or two sentences of comments from your friends who skimmed over your script. And for the most part, these readers are usually folks who work in the industry for production companies or managers or agents or things like that. And they're people who are reading scripts all day and they know what a good script is rather than, say, a random friend who works at a Starbucks or someone else who's another aspiring writer just starting out. So you're perhaps more likely to get a certain quality of feedback from those people. So just do your research and see if there's something out there that's right for you, especially if you need like a 48-hour turnaround or something. I think that's the best way you're going to be able to get that. But another good thing to note when I was talking about, you know, who you're asking for these notes from is often the people who you want to read your script the most have the least time. This is people like working writers, agents, assistants, things like that. And to those people, you shouldn't just be throwing out your rough first drafts or your, your first attempts at things or notes. You know, I think with those kind of contacts and friends, you want to be waiting until you think that your script is pretty much as good as you can get it. So ideally, when they read it, sure, they might have some finer point notes, but you're more aiming to impress them. In a, a perfect world, they might offer to pass your stuff along to a rep or whatever it may be. So I think work out those early bad drafts with closer friends and collaborators whom you trust. And then later on in the process is when you want to be going for the the kind of people who you're asking a real favor of. That ties back to the whole reading onion idea of getting that initial feedback that's really going to change your structure or your characters or your dialogue, those really specific macro details, you should be getting that kind of feedback early on in the process, not on draft number four, because that probably is going to lead to some page one rewriting. Now, speaking of the Facebook group that we created, the TV Writers Room, uh, we had a couple of great questions and things pop up over the last week from people who had things they wanted answered. So we're actually going to address some of those now on the podcast. Yeah. And so the first one was about the dichotomy between multicams and single cams. And the post said, it seems that most sitcoms that are being made are more in the single cam mode. So my question is, should I shift my writing style, which is mostly inspired by Friends and the Big Bang Theory, to writing more of a single cam kind of show? That being said, I'm so passionate by writing multicams, but they're not being made and they seem to be a dying art. Any advice would be helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and I, I definitely had a lot of thoughts on this, and I did make every reply there, which you can see, but I'm going to read it out here on the podcast for all of our listeners as well. So I said, actually, you know, I'd argue that multicams are having a resurgence lately. You know, if you take a look at the network comedy pilots from this last season, uh, it was roughly about 50% multicam or hybrid and 50% single cam. ABC, Fox, CBS, even NBC all had multicams in the running. A good thing about multicams is they're cheaper to make, and if they hit it big, they tend to run for longer and more successfully than your average single cam. So a lot of networks really want to find that Big Bang Theory or that Friends that's going to, to do that for them. So they're more willing to take a shot. Again, the pilots are cheaper to produce, so they can do more of them. So sure, you know, streaming services and cable particularly might be tending more towards single cam comedy, but even Netflix is doing multicams now. Stuff like Disjointed, whatever you may have thought of that, uh, Fuller House, One Day at a Time, which is actually fantastic. So I would say stick to your guns. You know, if you can write a great multicam script with a unique perspective to you, you know, something no one else could have written but you with great jokes that work on the page. I'd say it's potentially even easier to get interest in that than a good single cam script. I think the biggest mistake you can do as a nascent writer is chasing trends instead of writing something that you're passionate about. So if you're actually good at writing multicams over single cams, then lean into that format because you'll be known as that specialist instead of just some generic, oh, I'm just doing this hot vampire single cam or hot werewolf trend show instead of something that's going to be more forward-thinking and more evergreen. Yeah, like we said in PT86, you do need to brand yourself as an emerging writer. You know, if you love writing multicams and you feel you would enjoy a career working on them, then don't be afraid to make that your niche and write a bunch of great multicam scripts and then put yourself out there as this passionate multicam writer. It's actually going to help agents and managers and eventually showrunners be able to kind of sell you and place you on shows and projects easier. When they need that rock star multicam writer, you're going to be at the top of the list rather than the folks who do a little bit of both and aren't really sure. Are, you know, while in general, it's a good idea to have a range of samples, you know, both a single cam and a multicam just in case, I think sometimes it's okay to say, I'm okay with having fewer opportunities in the stuff that I don't really want to do in order to maximize my opportunities for the things I actually want to do. 
And then just another couple of quick arguments in support of uh, leaning towards multicams as a comedy writer. Multicams tend to have bigger writer's rooms. They have, say, 10 or 12 people all throwing in jokes and that kind of thing, whereas single cams tend to get by on smaller staffs, like six or eight people. So there are physically more spots available for you in general on those shows. And the shows, like we said, tend to last longer. So there are new opportunities to get in each season as the people leave or move up. And if you do get in, then you could actually have that steady work for longer. So I hope that helps. The next question we had from the group was regarding uh, TV drama and how that lines up with jokes and humor. And it goes like this. Question for the group. I write TV dramas and only TV dramas, but since I can write a good joke, numerous people have tried to convince me to switch to or at least try to write comedy. I've never heard of sitcom writers being urged to write TV dramas, but it feels like I'm always being steered towards comedy. In your experience, do comedy writers get harangued like this? Any other TV drama writers dealing with this? Well, I can tell you right now that many writers are dealing with this question since this has been an issue on our podcast since episode two, Declare Your TV Major. So some writers, especially currently, are crossing formats for sure since lines are getting blurrier. Liz Sarnoff is a great example of someone who made her name for herself in one hour and wrote the best episode of Barry this past season, which is obviously a half hour. Jane Espenson also came from comedy. And a friend of mine was writing comedies for the longest time and finally switched to dramas, but that wasn't an easy decision for him to make, nor an easy one to follow through with. The bottom line is that TV is very structural. Breaking a one hour is different than breaking a half hour show. So when it comes to writing and building that portfolio, having both a very comedic half hour and separately a very serious one hour will be very confusing to any reps and executives. That is why I always advise people to declare a major, at least initially. Also, you could be looking at shows you could write on or want to write on as a litmus test to figure out the kind of formats or stories that you should write samples around. Now, that doesn't mean you can't write comedy if you're in drama or vice versa, but a one hour and a half hour are two very different beasts. Right. And I think that there's an important point to make in terms of distinguishing between format, you know, half hour and one hour and tone. You can write a one hour ostensibly drama that still has a lot of comedy and levity in it. It still has jokes in it, but it's not a comedy for multiple reasons, you know, format, structure, all that kind of thing. And so I would say that just because you're good at writing a joke, it doesn't mean you have to become a joke writer or a comedy writer. There are any number of one hour dramas out there that have a lot of great humor and, and levity in them. It might just be more case of the kind of shows that you want to work on are not so much a, a 13 Reasons Why or some sort of dark drama, but more those, you know, Better Call Saul or the kinds of shows that do tend to work that in there. A lot of people are looking for consistency in voice and format. If you write, say, a Jessica Jones spec script and the fellowships like that sample and want to see something else from you, you have to give a one hour script probably because that's what they're expecting as your secondary sample, not just some half hour multicam laugh out loud comedy. And on the business end, as well as staffing, it really depends on, you know, the genre and the show you are going after because by and large, half hours will only be accepted for half hours and vice versa for one hours. There are very specific counterexamples. Uh, recently, Lethal Weapon was staffed with both half hour and one hour people uh, because they needed that comedic sensibility uh, and probably also because the Shoners worked in that domain beforehand. And it is not unheard of to make the jump from one format to another, but really you need to lean into that format, especially when you're first starting out because it's about that consistency in your portfolio and your consistency in your writing. And it is also about what you want to do. It doesn't matter if other people are telling you that you should go one way or another. What do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? What do you want to spend the rest of your life scraping together to try to find the jobs to pursue? Just because you might be okay at one other thing, you know, I might be okay at finance, but it doesn't mean that I want to spend my career doing that. So just focus on what you love, and that's what's going to be best for you. I hired Nick as my accountant, and look where I am. I'm broke <laughs> doing this podcast for money, and this is a free podcast. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> All right, moving on to another question from the group. And this one goes, one of the biggest managements in LA wants to read my TV pilot. They have added a release and agreement submission and material form to secure their rights in case they have already something similar or are going to receive something similar in the future. Does anyone have experience with these forms? Are they standard? 
And the answer to that is yes, they are absolutely standard and necessary. I used to work at a production slash literary management company, and I would send one of those out to every single writer who ever sent in a query or sample or whatever we were interested in, in having from them, whether it was unsolicited or solicited or, or that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's extremely common, and it protects both parties, honestly. It's very likely that they have read something similar before, and they don't want you deciding to go and sue them because you think that you stole their idea. And uh, on your end, it also kind of acknowledges the fact that they have received this script, and it's officially logging the fact that they have had that there, so at least you could point to that as well. There are a whole bunch of legal reasons why this is necessary, even if they somehow stole your idea and turned it into a script. We've been over this before in terms of copyright. You can't copyright ideas, only executions. So unless they were literally copy-pasting entire pages of your script and going off to sell it, you wouldn't have any legal recourse to sue them anyway. So you have nothing to worry about. Go ahead and sign that form. It's a formality, and don't worry about it. And we're also going to cover this topic down the line in a future episode because we're going to have an entertainment lawyer as a guest. So get hyped. Yeah, he's going to be actually going over a lot of stuff about contracts and agreements and stuff that's relevant to writers. So tune in for that one. And let's continue now with questions that we've received from you guys at ask at paperteam.co. And their first question is from Tash Sharif, who asks, Hi guys, the podcast has been a huge part of my writing journey. I've got a couple of specs and an original pilot still very much in its teen phase. But I've got questions about becoming an animation writer without having any artistic talent. I'm a huge consumer of movies and TV shows, but I tend toward a lot of cartoons like Steven Universe and a ton of anime. My question is is how do I become a writer on animation since a lot of shows are boarded versus being scripted? I also wanted to get my hands on scripts from anime series to compare how they describe action versus standard American scripting, but haven't had any luck. Do you guys have any pointers for someone like me? Thanks again. Um, hey, Taj. I mean, those are great questions. And now the good news or bad news maybe is that I'm in the same boat. Like I can't draw. I don't have any practical visual art skills or some sort of art portfolio to speak of, yet I've had paid work in animation. So it does, I will say, make things perhaps a little harder in the animation world if you don't have that, specifically on those storyboard-driven shows, like you said. It just means that you can't take a job as a storyboarder or artist who gets to effectively write the show as they're doing those storyboards. That said, you can still work as a writer on those shows. Now, the writers are separate from the storyboarders, and they come up with the ideas for the episodes, you know, the season arcs, things like that. They will write the outlines and then pass them along to the storyboarders. And then after they get them back, they will often be doing polishes after it's gone through them. So you can still get work as a writer on board-driven shows. It's just that they're smaller rooms, say three or four writers. And they're often people who have perhaps worked with the show's creator or head writer before. They're rarely putting out big calls for writers to the agencies for those kind of shows, although I have seen it before. They might just have, say, one slot available. I've also heard, weirdly enough, that Cartoon Network doesn't tend to hire writing teams as the pay is too low to split between two people, so perhaps board-driven writers maybe get a little less income than their script-driven counterparts as well. The other place where this might affect you is if you want to be a show creator. You know, these people are more often than not former animators or storyboarders, etc. You know, take a look at Tom Ruger, who we had on the podcast back in PT89. And that's because not only do they have a sense for story, but they have a literal vision and visual framework and style for what the show would be and a way to communicate that to the artistic team. They probably also have relationships with a bunch of artists who they could bring in as their crew and relationships with the studios and networks that they've worked for before as artists and storyboarders. Now, that's that said, it doesn't mean you can't be an animation writer or show creator if you can't draw. You're just going to want to steer more towards the script-driven shows or hope to get lucky in the board-driven world. If you want to create a show, you can always team up with an artist or a visual director or a production company to produce those images and animatics if the buyers are wanting that kind of visual proof of concept to go with it. It's also not too late to start taking art classes, you know, online or college extension, community college, you know, maybe learn some animation. It certainly can't hurt. Yeah, and regarding your question about getting your hands on anime scripts, to be quite honest that's probably going to be one of the hardest things to do because one most scripts available either online or in libraries like the Rise Guild are western based they're American scripts anime scripts are by and large done in Asia so finding those PDFs uh, around the internet is going to be really difficult not even mentioning the language barrier that you're going to be encountering because those could be not even written in English right that was my same thought I honestly don't know that much about the anime world I'm interested to find out more about how they do their kind of scripting and production uh, but I can't really speak to that but like 
like Alex, I would say that those scripts are probably going to be in Japanese. So unless you read Japanese or you know that kind of thing, it's going to be hard for you to take any lessons away from that and transfer that format over. I feel like the best advice if you are desperate to connecting with those people is trying to find contact in Japan and with those anime companies and those writers and those creatives, either through social media, emails, or other platforms. And that could be perhaps the best slash only way to get a hold of that content. The, the closest thing I could think to that is perhaps getting involved in the comics world here, because that could lead to some connections with you know manga and Japanese comics, which tend to be turned into anime very frequently. So that might be some sort of bridge across to that. Our next question is from Catherine, and she says, Hi, Alex. I am a big fan of your podcast, so I wanted to subscribe. I'm a playwright, and I'm starting to dip my toe into TV writing. Questions on my mind are, is it okay to start writing TV samples, even if you aren't an expert yet in structure of the form that you want to do? I write comedy. I'm looking to write a half-hour comedy pilot. Thanks for your support of aspiring TV writers. Best, Catherine. Well, the short answer is absolutely yes. Regarding tips on specking, I definitely recommend the two episodes on the topic that we did, uh, which are TV Spec 101, that's PT34, and then TV Spec 201, that's PT79. The bottom line is you should definitely write TV samples to get used to that format. It's really through that process in my mind that you will be able to learn what TV structure really is. Practice makes perfect, which is why I recommend people work on spec scripts of existing shows before moving on to TV pilots. That way they get used to the format of what a traditional episode of TV looks like without being bogged down by macro issues like world building or character creation. Now, on top of the above links, I'd also check out some of the books that we've recommended across the different episodes. Uh, Marty Cook's Write for TV is kind of a catch-all TV writing book that talks about writing for comedy, one-hour specs, original drama pilots, and even children's TV and reality and news. And you also have Larry Brody's television writing from the inside out in terms of the more technical, structural aspects of writing for TV. He actually does a great job at walking you through every major step of writing a TV script, uh, specifically the outline stage, which is admittedly the majority of the work in TV. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say, uh, you said you have a background in playwriting. The cool thing about that is that playwrights are highly desirable in the TV world. You know, look at Bo Willeman from House of Cards or Becca Brunstetter from This Is Us and American Gods. Uh, in fact, some shows like American Gods were actually specifically looking for writers who weren't TV writers to get a different feel or voice to their show, you know, that emphasis on dialogue and character that playwrights are known for. I know as well that a lot of showrunners are happy to read plays or short stories etc as writing samples because it's a nice break from all those tv scripts that they're for you know the hundreds and hundreds of tv scripts they're forced to go through so you may actually have some more usable samples than you think already plus it's a good way for you to stand out from the pile now, if you're a comedy writer and a playwright, you might want to actually look into writing multicam sitcoms, as the two forms are surprisingly close to one another. There is an emphasis on limited sets and action, lots of dialogue and character work. Even the pages of multicam scripts are formatted somewhat like a stage play, so uh, that kind of bridges that gap between those two formats for you. You know, single cams and features might feel a little bit more foreign, but it's not that hard to pick up the basics and adapt once you get going. <laughs> Now let's get into some current events and let's talk about some of the more breaking-ish news from the past few weeks about the TV writing and TV writing business. First one is this study that came out about Netflix being the number one choice for TV viewing beating broadcast, cable, and YouTube. And you can find that link uh, in the show note, and it comes from Variety, who says, Netflix has established a substantial foothold in the American living room, especially among millennials. Millennials are everywhere. Now, this is kind of the, the hot <laughs> new trend, isn't it? The subscription video service is now the most popular platform for watching entertainment on TV, ahead of cable, broadcast, and YouTube and Hulu. Now, to come up with those numbers, they surveyed 2,500 U.S. adults and asked which platforms do you use most often to view video content on TV? And Netflix captured the number one spot with 27% of total respondents, followed by basic cable at 20%, broadcast at 18%, and YouTube at 11%. And that difference is even more dramatic when you look at 18 to 34 demos in terms of 40% of those in the younger demo said Netflix is the platform they use most often. That's 40% against YouTube being number two at 17% and basic cable at 12.6%. It's a huge, huge gap. 
Yeah, I mean, I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm really not. <laughs> when I think about when I go home and watch TV, a lot of the time, it's just first instinct in my mind, turn on Netflix, see what's new, see, uh, you know, what shows I haven't finished watching yet, all that kind of thing. So, and I think as you noted there, uh, as the generations go on, I think it's going to become more and more normal for people to get the vast majority of their entertainment content from online streaming services than traditional TV, or especially cable now that so many people are cutting the cord and those cable shows are becoming available on streaming services as well. Yeah, I think that's just the the clear indication of every single network, every single production company wanting to move towards this OTT formula and this nonlinear distribution model. And honestly, if you look at even the way Netflix has been marketed and the way Netflix has incepted itself into our daily lives, you literally have TV uh, manufacturers building into their remotes Netflix buttons, you know, ingrained in that construct. So really, if you think about, you know, the way you approach TV and the way you approach content uh, and content consumption, it does feel like Netflix is the natural overlord that's going to take over our lives, much like Disney. Yeah, I mean, it's a part of, like you said, the social zeitgeist. <laughs> there was literally that Netflix and chill meme for a while. Yeah. You know, can't No one ever said stars and chill. <laughs> <laughs> CBS all access and chill. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, again, none of this really surprises me. It is important to note that those numbers don't suggest that there are literally more numbers of people watching Netflix than all of those other things. It's just the the preferred choice of viewing platforms. So we're not saying that there are millions more people who watch Netflix than there are people who watch broadcast, just that the preferences in terms of ranking are in that way. But it wouldn't surprise me if those things change in future. It'd be interesting to see how they evolve specifically at the point where Netflix is going to reach complete saturation of the market, which I would argue is very close to where we are currently. As it stands, again, 40% of people under 30 34 are watching Netflix as their primary source of content. But if you look at the actual library of Netflix, more and more, it's about original content of Netflix. It's not really about existing movies. It's not really about existing shows. It's about their own IPs. And it's really moving towards a, a world where every single network wants to own that IP and every studio wants to own that IP. Now, in terms of the content, what's really interesting is that Netflix is moving towards a more mainstream almost broadcast-like format, especially if you look at content like Lost in Space or even Stranger Things, they're really trying to hit that four-quadrant demo. It'll be interesting to see if we're going to lose those more edgy shows like House of Cards used to be, which was their first property. Yeah, I would say it's less likely that we lose them than it is to just add the broader audience stuff in addition to all of that. You know, their entire business model is built around having, uh, you know, it's a P.T. Barnum thing. It's something for everyone. You've got every little possible niche. So you bring in the widest possible audience rather than the deepest possible audience because your subscription numbers are going to go up. Right. I mean, to that point, I definitely agree that's the idea. Uh, in terms of the execution of those shows, a lot of the more edgier niche Netflix shows are going away. Sensei being canceled, a prime example of that, even though it's clearly one of the most expensive shows on TV. Mm -hmm. But either way, I definitely think there's uh, this mainstreamification, if that's even a word, of that Netflix content because they want to get the most amount of subscribers. They don't necessarily want to get the most diverse subscribers. Sure. I mean, th that's that's true. And I would argue that those original wave of shows like House of Cards and Sensei and all that kind of thing were designed to be as noisy in the marketplace as possible to attract people to Netflix to get the kind of content that you couldn't get anywhere else aside from perhaps HBO. And now that they don't need to do that anymore, everyone knows what Netflix is and has the subscriptions, they can move towards whatever they want, really. The other thing too that I find interesting is that Netflix positioned itself to become the new HBO, at least initially. That was a statement that was made by one of the executives, this idea that Netflix needs to become HBO before HBO becomes Netflix. And now if you actually look at the catalog of Netflix shows, a lot of those shows would not be on HBO. They would not be that caliber premium cable shows. There would be more basic cable, if not networky. As much as I enjoy Lost in Space, in concept, the execution of it is more as a family drama that could have been perhaps on ABC. Sure. And I think that, you know, one thing I know firsthand from having spoken to some Netflix executives is that they're trying to do things that they haven't done before. They don't need three shows that are exactly like BoJack Horseman. They want a BoJack and a Big Mouth, and then they want to, you know, expand and try new things and bring in those new audiences rather than retreading the same ground that they've already done. So perhaps that's why they're moving away from those kind of shows too. Now I'm disappointed because I really wanted two Bo, two Jack coming to Netflix. <laughs>
Next piece of news that we wanted to discuss was a uh, report published recently in Deadline about how much money the WGA, the Writers Guild of America West, has earned in the last year, in 2017. And that number is pretty good. It's $1.4 billion, which is a new record. It's up 3% from 2016, and that kind of breaks down to being about $400 million for feature films, which are kind of coming up again since 2010, more than 6%. And then TV is fast approaching almost a billion dollars a year, up maybe about one and a half percent from the prior year. I'd love to look at the numbers in terms of the TV growth uh, over the past decade, because if you compare it to the previous year, it's only 1.4%, which seems very tiny. Uh, however, in the bigger picture, I can only assume the growth has been exponential. And right now, in terms of the peak TV of it all, we are reaching perhaps uh, a level of stagnation. Yeah, I agree. I think if you look at the longer term numbers, TV would have boomed from 10, 20 years ago. And features have been doing this weird thing where, you know, you would think they're declining, but I guess they're sort of coming back just a little bit as well. Whereas if you look at the bigger picture, I do think that the money from features might be going down. Or maybe they're just finding new avenues of distribution to make money from those rather than traditional box office release. I think that's one element. I think the other element is given the growth of franchises and uh, expansion of universes, they're moving towards a more TV-like model with writer's rooms. I mean, Transformers is famous for doing that. Now Star Trek is doing it. I think Star Wars may be moving towards that direction in the near future. A lot of those properties are going to a more writer's room format, which hypothetically means more people being hired to write those movies. Now, in practicality, uh, perhaps they're paid much less than you know a classic feature writer would be, but that's you know up to the yield in the studios to decide. Yeah. And one interesting thing of note is that animated films are not covered by the WGA. So a lot of the biggest earners are those huge Disney, Pixar kind of films, but that's those are not under WGA contracts, so they're not counting the money that the writers would have earned from that or the gross of those movies and that kind of thing. So I would say that perhaps features earn a little bit more than we're seeing on the numbers there. They're just not specifically WGA contracts. Speaking of which, uh, it's interesting to look at the number of writers who are actually working under the WGA, and that was in the last year uh, 5,819 WGA members reporting income from writing. And that splits down to about 1,940 40 in film and 4,670 in TV and digital. And those numbers have been on the rise every year since 2012. $1.4 billion against essentially 6,000 writers is about $240,000 per person paid to the guild, which is an interesting number. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. And one thing that people have said before is that the chances of becoming a professional writer are, there are fewer spots available essentially than being a professional NFL player or basketball player. You know, it is it might be shocking to some people to hear that there are only five or 6,000 working writers in America, or at least wherever the West is covering the members of the WGA Guild. Again, there are other guilds and there are non-union things. There's the IATSE for the animation writers. So it's not to say that there aren't more writers than that. But so what the population in America is 325 million people. And of that, uh, you need to hit that, <laughs> be one of those five or 6,000 to work. It can be dispiriting to think about that. To be fair, the 6,000 figure is reported earnings, right? So hopefully I'm expecting a lot more guild members than 6,000 members. But that's the point of a union is for those working people to subsidize the other, however many writers are in the guild. Getting to that threshold of being in the guild is perhaps the biggest barrier of entry. Getting accepted in the guild, and that means obviously working uh, on a TV or a feature scale at some point. Yeah, and as a writer, your work and your earnings are not going to be consistent. You might earn $2 million one year and then not work at all the next year because you're doing development projects that you haven't been paid for, or you're just taking a holiday and, and taking a little break from things, or you can't find work getting staffed on a show this year, or whatever it happens to be. So again, these are not kind of accurate one-to-one numbers. There are other factors to consider. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the Guild is going to do with that revenue, and perhaps they can do more outreach and more diversity initiatives. So we shall see. And speaking of diversity, CA just launched the Amplify database for TV writers of color. Right, yeah, this is kind of an exciting development. They have released this semi-public, I guess, database of the you know, working TV writers of color in the industry. And so what it does is gives agents, producers, showrunners, those kind of people, access who can search for writers by ethnicity, by their genre, by their, their writer level, all that kind of thing. And it's not actually just for writers rep by CAA, it's for everyone across the board. I think the prerequisites are that you need at least one professional credit 
credit to qualify. There have been sort of unofficial lists like this compiled at agencies for years. Everyone's always looking for diverse writers, but this is, I guess, one of the first major public databases that they have put out there. The WGA does have a version of like this, and they've had it for a couple of years, but it was more of like an opt-in system where you self-identify as diverse when you're joining the WGA. And there are a couple of issues with, I guess, the accuracy of this. It only covers WGA writers, whereas Amplify would also include those IATSE writers, maybe, or non-union writers who still have credits. And some people uh, may not have wished to opt in, say, you know, writers with disabilities for fear of discrimination, or not even realize that this database existed. So I'm, I'm optimistic. We'll see how this one goes. This is a very interesting solution by CA to combat that representation issue inside the writer's room. I'm personally always skeptical about lists and databases of human beings, especially in our current political climate. <laughs> Honestly, I'm a bit on the fence about this, about specifically how CA is approaching this, uh, considering that CA is, let's remind ourselves, an agency, not some nonprofit organization or union. Yes, it isn't only writers wrapped by CA, but it is still a platform governed by CA. So there's an inherent conflict of interest in CA promoting any kind of talent outside of their own list of people. That's the point of database, to give access to people who wouldn't be given that access before. It's about promoting this diversity of talent and giving them a platform for decision makers to find them. And that's an amazing idea, an amazing thing to do. And I don't want to be down on the concept. I'm just dubious about a corporation and an agency at that being the savior of TV writer representation. Yeah, no, I think you're right to be skeptical there. Like, what is CAA's vested interest in this? You know, if they are freely advertising, here are writers who you can hire who we will not get any money from, then what are they getting out of it? I guess you could argue it's a publicity thing. They want to present a good face to the industry. Look at all these steps we're taking. How great is CAA? We're improving our name and our brand by kind of putting that out there. And I think perhaps that is the, the main reason. And also, you know, they can promote their own writers on the list as well. So it's right. not a zero-sum game for them. I did have another question uh, about this whole idea. And to me, that's the bigger issue at play. And that is if showrunners and executives are even going to use the database to begin with. There's no incentive for them to go through this Amplify list over, let's say, their own connections or their own agency or even the Guild. In fact, just from an access standpoint, the way the Guild has been doing it may have its limits, but they're about promoting writers at the end of the day, not just their bottom line. The struggle isn't just about access to me. It's about those decision makers actually hiring diverse rooms that represent the diverse stories and characters being told on screen. Yeah, for sure. I think there are certain barriers even to this database. Like you need to be an approved professional. And I guess that's someone sitting at CAA deciding whether or not you're worthy to look at their database. And again, like, you know, showrunners, producers, those people are busy and they've got a show to run. They're maybe not going to go out of their way to look this up and specifically scout for these writers. If they already have people sending scripts and making phone calls to them and putting them on their desk, that's just going to be an easier option for them. So there, there needs to be that willingness to embrace that. And look, having worked in literary management, there are often calls that are put out for very specific types of writers in terms of ethnicity and whatever that they want in their room. They're like, we're looking for mid-level diverse writers, or we're looking for a staff writer level, African-American writer with experience in XYZ. And so I think in those kind of cases where they are looking already, you know, they've already set the mandate on their own show or their own company. We need diversity and we need this specific kind of diversity to tell a story the best I can. I can see this being a useful tool. Yeah, I just hope that the Guild gets involved in some capacity and we have a more structural format to this whole idea instead of just a corporation essentially governing the list. That's yeah, all. Absolutely. The next news item uh, surrounds the show Snowpiercer and the director actually refusing to come back for reshoots because of a very different vision from the showrunner. Tell us a little bit more about that, Alex. Yeah, so Scott Derrickson, who directed sort of the original Snowpiercer pilot for TNT, is refusing to reshoot that pilot, because what happened was Josh Friedman was the original creator and showrunner of the Snowpiercer series, and he wrote this allegedly amazing, which I can believe because Josh Friedman is amazing, TV pilot, and then Josh Friedman got replaced by Graham Mason from Orphan Black, and what ensued was this whole Twitter feud, which you may be aware of already, where uh, Josh Friedman went publicly on Twitter blasting Graham, saying that Graham uh, didn't contact him after taking over his position and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to bore you with the details. Right. There is a tradition with writers. If you're replaced on a project, you contact the previous writer as sort of a, you know, a thing out of respect, hear what they have to say and kind of leave things in a good place. Absolutely. And this next element of this drama is that Scott Derrickson now uh, doesn't agree with the completely different vision that Graham has on this show. And he actually tweeted publicly, uh, and he said, the 72-page Snowpiercer TV pilot script by Josh Friedman is the best I've ever read. The feature 
length pilot I made from that script may be my best work. The new showrunner has a radically different vision for the show. I am foregoing my option to direct the extreme reshoots. So I just thought that was an interesting sort of like look at the behind the scenes drama of the show that's going to be probably a tentpole show for TNT. It's really strange how uh, all this drama is spilling out over Twitter instead of being condensed, you know, sort of behind the scenes. Yeah, look, I mean, this kind of thing happens all the time. We just don't get to hear about it. So I guess that's the unique element of this story is that it's becoming more and more public and people's opinions are being put out there and people aren't afraid to put that out there about themselves. You know, we can see the negative side of this with people like Roseanne who say something on Twitter and then their show gets canceled and they you know ruin the lives of a bunch of people who are working on that show. So I think that's just a perhaps a function of the times, you know, that things are more and more public and open with Twitter and Facebook and social networking. Yeah, it's definitely a good and bad thing. The good thing is it connects people, but the bad thing is what happened with uh, Star Wars and The Last Jedi. Okay. So that's got to be an extreme example of that. And I don't know, I feel like people should judge some of the content by the outcome of the content, not the behind-the-scenes drama at the end of the day, because the behind-the-scenes drama can be a fun trivia information, but it doesn't necessarily impact what the content of that story is. Right, and there's that saying that there's no such thing as bad press, so this might even just be publicity for Snopius when everyone's going to want to see how radically it was changed from before. I really don't think this is going to impact TNT or the show super negatively in some way just because, again, it's just getting more attention than it may not have had before. I'm very curious to see the shot version, the feature-length Scott Derrickson-directed pilot on my screen, but I don't think it will ever see the light of day. Yeah, it sounds like an opposite of the Game of Thrones situation where the initial (laughs) pilot was terrible and they made something great from it. Perhaps it's going to be the other way around. Time will tell. Uh, Let's move on to our next news items about uh, mergers. Is that what's happening? Uh, Yes, uh, murders and executions. I mean, mergers and acquisitions. So the the big one recently that actually went through was the AT&T and Time Warner merger. So Time Warner owns uh, a lot of things. They own uh, Warner Brothers Studios on the film and TV side. They own uh, TBS, you know, stands for Turner Broadcasting, TNT, all those kind of things. They also have a a stake in Hulu as well, like a 10% stake. So this is... Uh, you know, a big entertainment company. And now you have this big kind of telecommunications company coming in and not for the first time, you know, I've seen that before with Comcast and all that sort of thing. It's not unusual. It's just a a big move. I don't think this is going to have as big of an impact on the entertainment landscape as the next merger we're about to discuss. But it's it's interesting to notice that firstly, it was approved by the government. There weren't any real antitrust concerns or there were, but they were defeated, you know, and I think this is because they didn't have those competing entertainment interests in the way that some of these other things did. The The biggest thing that it might happen is uh, making cable and internet bundling interesting because AT&T owns Time Warner, so they're going to want to prioritize putting all of their Time Warner channels into their internet bundles and exclude the other ones who are their competition. And then one more thing to be concerned about might be net neutrality. Now that that has been basically ripped away um, for the time being, it opens up the possibility of internet providers like AT&T slowing down their competitors' services, like streaming on Netflix while offering priority speeds for their own content. Yeah, I feel like net neutrality is probably the number one issue that most people are not aware of or not talking about that's currently happening to us. And that has direct impact on the content, because if you control the distribution, then you control the content by definition. And so with AT&T and Time Order, I mean, if you live in LA, you're already aware of the limited, if not borderline monopoly that exists on internet access that you have. You don't have a choice. You can only do AT&T or Fios or Time Order, whatever it is. Spectrum. Spectrum. Yeah. yeah. So now it's going to get even worse. You know, very recently, AT&T said they would not raise their prices. And currently, they're now doing just that. They're raising their internet subscription fees uh, because they can. Right, and there's less competition. Exactly. And so on the net neutrality front, I think it's really dangerous, especially if you look at uh, Netflix being, for example, 40% of the content uh, being consumed currently. It's a very dangerous slope in terms of limiting that access to people and limiting that access to communication and that content. Uh, Netflix may want to splinter off and create their own internet access, and then you'll have to pay, I don't know, $15 to get the Netflix internet access, or they're going to partner up with Google, who's doing their fiber thing, or, or their Wi-Fi thing, whichever case may be. It, I don't believe if you look at the way any other Western development world is structured in terms of telecommunication, the US is probably the worst off currently. And I think this is not helping anything at all. 
And if you're actually concerned or even curious about this, I would definitely recommend checking out the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is tackling all these issues. And you can even donate if you care so much about it. And the next big merger that is on everyone's minds here in Hollywood and perhaps even the rest of the world is Disney and Fox. Essentially what's going on here, if you don't know, is that Disney wants to buy out as much of Fox as they can. You know, the Murdochs are looking to offload their assets and get a good price for them. And Disney is this ever-expanding global corporation that would love to have access to all of that content and uh, especially, you know, those kind of franchises and things that they can start building on. Now, what this means practically is that they're going to own basically everything that Fox currently owns, except for the broadcasting network, because there are certain laws in effect that you can't own more than one broadcast network. And then they're also probably not going to have Fox News or Fox Sports, because those are perhaps the most profitable things for the Murdochs and the ones that they actually want to hold on to as well. So what this means is that now Disney, who, as you may know, owns Uh, ABC network uh, and ABC studios now also has 20th century Fox studios, but they don't have the Fox broadcasting company or network to go with. So now they have two major entertainment studios and only one broadcast network to put that content on. So this is a little concerning for the entertainment industry. Uh, You know, aside from all of the corporate layoffs and things that are going to happen for people who work on that side, because, you know, you already have an entire team of people at Fox, an entire team of people at Disney, and you can't have two people in the same job. For those of us who are writers and people who are working in the support staff of shows, we've already seen some of the impacts of this impending merger. Um, Take a look at all of the Fox shows, especially the comedies that have been cancelled recently. You've got Last Man on Earth, uh, Ghosted was just cancelled, Lucifer and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, although those two I think have been picked up by other networks or services. It's you know giving good reason for writers perhaps on all of the other Fox Network or Fox Studio shows to be worried. Regarding this cancellation, I think there's two things at play. One element is something you just mentioned in terms of the consolidation and contraction of all these companies into one. And so you now have Fox, or let's say in this case Disney, wanting to own ABC Studio property and everyone wanting to own that IP for distribution. The other element specifically for Fox, though, is that Fox is somewhat moving towards a two-night-a-week original programming schedule because they bought the NFL feeds and they bought a lot more sports rights. Um, So I think that also cuts a lot of that original content being distributed. It's definitely important to be mindful of this vertical integration with the studios and the networks because what that means is that and it's been trending more and more towards this in recent years, is that the companies that own a studio producing the content also want to own the network or the distribution service that it's going to because then they get all of that money coming back to them. They don't have to split the licensing fees or anything else like that with those companies. So now that Disney is going to have ABC Studios and 20th Century Fox, they are going to want all of that programming to be on the ABC network or on Freeform or you know whatever it happens to be. And it means that they're less likely for all the Fox Studios stuff to be going to any other uh, channel or network out there like Fox Broadcasting. So it, it basically just limits the number of shows that they have time for. You know, ABC Network only has so many time slots. So perhaps we're going to see less shows uh, being produced in that way for at least mainstream broadcast. Also, we should probably mention the 70th Emmy nominations that came out last week, but we'll discuss those in details once the ceremony happens in September. So let's close out this episode with a couple of TV writing related current events. Uh, The first one is this all female showrunner panel, uh, which we will link in the show notes that I was fortunate enough to attend because two of my bosses were there. And the reason for why this exists, if you haven't followed any of the uh, TV writing news uh, for the past couple of weeks is Variety put up this inside the writer's room panel that did not feature a single woman on it. And so in response, Liz Hanna, who co-wrote the post, tried discussing with people saying why did they somehow forget yeah. that women existed as writers in this industry a lot of high level writers and producers have chimed in uh, volunteering to be on a panel and so Lysana put up this amazing all-female showrunner panel called an evening with female showrunners that featured the most amount of high profile eps and writers I've seen on a panel, including Aida Kroll from uh, Luke Cage, uh, Amy Burke from Counterpart, my bosses Allison Shapiro and Lita Calagritis from Alter Carbon, Beth Schwartz from Arrow, Gabriel Stanton, uh, Kito Shimizu, uh, Maura Wally Beckett. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And there were so many people that they actually had to split that event into two different panels that were streamed live on Twitter back to back. So uh, once again, both of those panels will be available in the show notes. If you haven't taken a look, I definitely recommend 
recommend uh, you glance on them if you are at all in this TV industry business. And speaking of TV writing on Twitter, every now and then we get these kind of really insightful and awesome threads pop up from those TV writers on there. And the latest one is from Jose Molina. And uh, he asked, veteran TV writers, what is something that you know now that you wish you knew then? And we're going to put a link to that also in our show notes so you can scroll through and check them all out. But uh, here are a couple of the highlights of the advice from some of these high-profile TV writers. The first one is from Jane Espenson, who wrote for Buffy and Firefly. And she says, identify the parts of the job that you love and build a career around doing those parts well. Another interesting tweet came from Jeffrey Lieber from NCS New Orleans and the original who said, perfection is the enemy of good and good is a gateway to perfection. Which I definitely agree because it's all about rewriting. One was from Gloria Calderon Kellett from One Day at a Time, and she started on How I Met Your Mother. Uh, and she says, You have a team to support you. They are smart, and you probably helped pick them. Lean on them. They like being made to feel valuable because they are. Then we have Jeff Thorne from The Librarians of Leverage, who said something very apropos about TV writing. Uh, he said, I can't actually do everything by myself. It is okay to trust some people. Former paper team guest Stephen Darinsett chimed in from Bob the Builder and Tumbleleaf and said a very pithy line that I like, which is, notes aren't insults. One tweet that I found both very funny and very insightful was David Slack from uh, Person of Interest, who said, how much one point on a successful network show is worth? I would have started focusing on development way earlier. <laughs> nice. And the last one we'll mention is from John Levenstein, a comedy writer from Arrested Development, Portlandia. And he says, the skills it takes to be on staff, often emphasizing conformity, are not the skills needed to run a show, including a distinctive voice and clear decision-making. Hold on to what makes you unique as you work your way up, or you will get there and not be able to do the job. Enough of that great advice. Let's close out this episode with some reviews that we've received from our listeners. This first one is actually a comment that was passed along by a friend from one of their friends who they'd recommended the podcast to. And their friend said, I just wanted to say that you recommended Paper Team a while ago. I can't remember where or when, but I've been listening to it religiously since then. I'm always unsure about what writing career to go into, and Paper Team has more than sparked an interest in TV script writing. So thank you for recommending it as I'm actively exploring the idea of TV writing now. Hope you had a good day. Yeah, definitely had a good day. Yeah, definitely <laughs> made you. my day. Now, looking at iTunes reviews, let's read a couple of them. And the first one came from JT underscore Clark, who says, Don't hesitate. Listen now. Alex and Nick have great insight into the TV writing industry, and they put out great, interesting content week after week. Paper Team is an invaluable resource to any person who writes for TV or aspires to one day. Thanks, JT. Maybe it's Justin Timberlake. Ooh, <laughs> Justin Timberlake Clark. <laughs> All right, the next one is titled Excellent Podcast, A Masterclass. Uh, and that is from Woo108. Woo. And they say, I've been a screenwriter for many years, but have recently been trying to move more into television, and this podcast has been invaluable. Alex and Nick have a wealth of information on the subject and share it in such an in-depth and organized manner. And they even bring some humor to it. It really is like a masterclass in writing with great tips about the industry. Oh, thank you, Woo. Yeah, it's nice to know that uh, working writers are, are tuning in as well. And our last couple of comments came from Paper T's entrance. The first one from Reef Siegel, who posted this before we tackled his Paper T's entry last week. I think it was a nice surprise for him. <laughs> yeah, and he said, I love your Paper Team podcast. It is the best TV writing podcast out there. The Paper Team podcast focuses on TV writing and what it takes to become a professional TV writer. Each episode contains insightful tidbits on TV writing and top-notch guests usually professional writers who help deconstruct TV writing and what it takes to make it in the TV writing business. And our last one is from Clint Williams, who was one of the winners of our Paper Tees segment. And he says, Dear Alex and Nick, I just wanted to say thanks for the Paper Tees critique of Chattahoochee and the prize of a free month of Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network. The webinars so far this month have been helpful. I'm polishing my two-page written pitch that I'll be submitting to an industry executive in a couple of weeks, an opportunity I wouldn't have had without you guys. Hope I can buy you both beverages next time I'm in LA. Again, thanks. Oh, we do love beverages, especially in this heat. Oh, yeah. I'll <laughs> take a cold beverage right now. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of our paper tease competition, before we go, I just wanted to remind everyone that it is still open for submissions. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, it can be any format, any genre, you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback from us on air and win prizes from our sponsors. 
And that brings us to the end of our episode. So thanks for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 97. And we'd love if you could take the time to leave us a review. You do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes, and all those reviews will help us find cool people like you to tune in and listen together. And our sponsor, Roadmap Writers, has launched their inaugural Jumpstart writing competition. Open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts, the competition presents 12 esteemed industry judges from top companies including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, and more. To learn more and view their incredible prize packages, visit RoadmapWriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the competitions tab. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, questions you would like us to answer on this very podcast, like this episode, you can send them to ask at paper team.co and what are we doing next week next week we are going to be sitting down with justin michael terry who was one of the writers of stargate origins the uh, mgm web series slash movie that picked up the franchise where it left off i know we're both big fans of stargate so i'll be excited to talk to him about that and we'll also go into a little bit of kind of writing across genres as justin is a big comedy guy as well yeah we'll engage the wormhole and step through that blue uh, iris <laughs> Apologies for those noises. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) See you then.